Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Let's take out our Bibles today and turn to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 1. It's the second book uh, in your Bible right after Genesis, and uh, today we're starting a new series through the book of Exodus. Kevin, there's a little feedback just in case you can't hear that. Um, And uh, so looking forward to getting into uh, Exodus today. Actually, I wanna give some kudos to our tech team uh, this morning. They showed up at the church, I think at like 6.30 this morning, and our overhead speakers were not working. And so they put it all together, figured out how to get some portable speakers in here today. You guys probably didn't even notice. So I wanna say thank you to what these guys do every single week for us in the church. All right, the book of uh, Exodus. Today we're gonna look at chapter one, verse one, through chapter two, uh, verse 10. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in the word. Lord, we come to you today. We thank you for this uh, book, a magnificent book, an important book, and we ask, Lord, that over the next uh, weeks and months as we read it and think about it, that you, Lord, would show us who you are. And uh, we pray, Lord, about all the individual exoduses that you are trying to produce in our lives over time. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be a people who respond to you, who come out in order to come into deeper relationship and fellowship with you. So Lord, we thank you for who you are and we pray that you'd speak to us from this book, not just today, but in the weeks and months to come. In Jesus' name, we pray together, amen, amen. Well, ever since I was a little boy, um, my dad's closest friends uh, would tell me this story from when they were younger men together. Apparently, they had all been on a backpacking trip uh, together and had gone deep out into the Ventana wilderness uh, when it was time to return. And uh, before returning, early in the morning, one of the guys found a large boulder that was maybe about 20 pounds uh, in weight and put it, snuck it into my dad's backpack. Uh, They thought for sure that he would pick up his pack and notice that weight differential and that he would throw it down and open it up and see the big prank that had been pulled on him. But that's not at all what happened. He put the pack on and he just grinded and grinded and grinded for mile after mile after mile until they finally got back to the parking lot where they had parked their cars and everybody announced to him, there's a boulder in your backpack, Bill. And uh, from that point forward, his nickname was Boulder Bill amongst this little group of guys. And as I heard that story as a young man, and as I continued to hear that story over and over and over again from this same group of guys over the years, I began to realize that this story was not just a story that meant nothing, but that it was a story that meant something to see the gleam in their eye, to hear the way that they talked about my father, I knew that what they saw that day was emblematic of something else, and I came to discover it as well. My dad was and is a grinder. You put a load on his back, and he is going to take the burden and the responsibility that is placed upon him and carry it to the final destination. 
And we all have these stories that uh, help symbolize a deeper truth. You think about it in countries or in uh, corporations or even in churches. The United States, we have the Boston Tea Party. It's, it, it, it speaks of something deeper into who we are as a people. Uh, Apple, as a company, has the famous stories of the garage and uh, Steve Jobs and uh, What's the other guy's name? Wozniak, building together these Apple computers. Even in Calvary Chapel, the Calvary family of churches, we have the original Calvary Chapel and Pastor Chuck Smith, who when the hippies were beginning to ask questions about God and wanting to come to church, he said, no, it's not important for the outside to become clean. If God is doing a work on the internal man, then open the doors and let them in, shoeless and dirty and smelly and all of that. I don't care, I wanna minister to them. And these stories, they say something bigger to us about a person or a church or a corporation. And the reason I'm saying that to you this morning is because the book of Exodus is the story that shows us who God is. God is a God who is continually desiring to pull us out of things so that he can pull us into relationship and fellowship with himself. In fact, if I were to point out the outline of the book of Exodus, it's fairly simple. The first half of the book deals with God pulling the people out of a slavery in Egypt, and the second half deals with God telling them about a tabernacle that they should build so that they could spend time in fellowship with himself. That simple outline of the book helps us come up with our theme for the book of Exodus. The theme of the book, as we study it, is going to simply be knowing God, knowing God. That's what God wants for us. He wants for us to know him and engage with him. Uh, there's that old song that Bob Marley used to sing called Exodus. And in the song, over and over and over again, on repeat, uh, his singers and himself say, the movement of God's people. But there is never any mention in the song of coming out, moving as God's people into depth of relationship with God. That's a misunderstanding of the book of Exodus. He's not only pulling us out of slavery, out of addictions, out of toxic relationships, out, he's pulling us into relationship and fellowship with himself. He wanted them to build a tabernacle so that he could speak to him there. Now, the pace I've planned for the, our journey through Exodus is going to be a brisk journey. I can see all of your eyes drifting up to the screen behind me, so I can only assume that there's an outline up there for you to see the pace that I'm going to uh, set out on. It, it, this is about a 40-chapter book, and it's gonna take me under, I'm shooting for under 20 Sundays to be here in the book of Exodus. Now, the reason for this is simple. Exodus is pretty repetitive, especially in the second half of the book, and there's good reasons for it to be repetitive, but I don't want us to get bogged down in the details and lose the big theme of this God of Exodus and what he's doing in their lives and therefore doing in our lives. That's gonna take me, because of that, about 11 or 12 hours to get through the book of Exodus. If you'd like a longer treatment of the book, I did a 30-plus hour uh, study through the book of Exodus a few years ago, and you can catch that online if you'd like to, if you wanna go a little bit uh, deeper than the study that we're going to go through. I also wanna say that while we were going through the Psalms this summer, 
Uh, the Psalms are very standalone in nature. So you could hear a teaching, uh, be gone for a week or two on vacation or whatever, and then come back. And because the Psalms are standalone in nature, you could kind of pick up right where we left off. You're not gonna be able to do that as easily with the book of Exodus or really most other books of the Bible. So uh, if you need to miss a Sunday and you're not up to speed because you missed it, I'd encourage you to go to YouTube or wherever you get podcasts and listen to or watch the teaching during the week uh, so that you can stay on pace with us as we journey through this book. Okay, today though, what I wanna look at in these first two chapters is I want us to think about God's presence. How would the people of Israel understood the presence of God? How would you maybe describe the presence of God? I think a lot of times we think of God's presence as a feeling or a sense or something like that, but uh, these opening uh, stories show us a, a completely different side of who God is. And so let's read our first section together in verse one through seven, where we learned that God's presence, or who God is, he's geared towards Exodus. Uh, verse one, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, some of you, as we read those first seven verses of the book of Exodus, you're saying to yourself, this is one of the things that's hard for me about reading the Bible. I pick it up, I want, I want to go through it, and, and the first thing that I get is this long list of names and this uh, family tree. But this family tree is vital to understanding the entire book of Exodus because it helps us, or it helps us understand that God is always geared towards Exodus. Uh, the book begins as if it sprouted from the soil of Genesis. In fact, the very beginning, those first phrases are a verbatim copy of Genesis 46, verse 8 where we get a recounting of the sons of Israel who years earlier had came to Egypt with their father, Jacob. What this does is it ties us to the final movement of the book of Genesis when the great-grandson of a man named Abraham, whose dad was named Jacob, whose name was Joseph, Joseph was betrayed by his brothers and sold into Egyptian slavery. But God was with Joseph, and just as Israel flourished during their stay in Egypt, Joseph also prospered. And he eventually brought all 70 of his extended family members to Egypt, and over a period of 400 years, we learn in these opening verses, they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And conservative estimates of the population of the Hebrew people at the time of the Exodus is around two or three million people strong. They, they had grown into a small nation of people. Now, this introduction that we just got in these first seven verses, it helps us understand that the book of Genesis is like an introduction or a prologue to the book of Exodus. And what Genesis shows us is that God is our creator who made us to be in friendship and fellowship with himself. He 
built the Garden of Eden so that Adam and Eve could walk and talk with and enjoy him there in, this, in the garden. But through rebellion or through sin, that fellowship with God was broken off. And what you have in the rest of the book of Genesis are people moving outward away from the garden and away from God and usually moving eastward. Uh, until you get to a man named Abraham who God called out of the east to come back to the land of Canaan or the land of promise. That's because God would not settle for forever separation. Uh, Did you guys know that the the Bible could have ended with Genesis chapter three? It could have ended with a separation from God and man, but God's heart would not allow it. And so he conspired to make a way for us to come back to himself. He did this first by calling a man named Abram. We just read about his family. He changed his name to Abraham, which means the father of many nations. And the book of Exodus recounts Israel's exodus from Egypt through an event called the Passover. And Abraham, in the book of Genesis, experienced his own exodus many years earlier when he called him out of his homeland in the east. Abraham also experienced his own Passover event many years earlier when God passed over his son Isaac in place of an animal sacrifice. God passed over Isaac and promised a future lamb would take away the sin of the world. His exoduses, Abraham's, and his experiences watching God pass over Isaac set the stage for the exodus in the future of his descendants. In a few generations, Joseph led his family to Egypt, and there they were fruitful and multiplied just as God had originally intended. But as much as Genesis anticipated Exodus, Exodus also reverberates throughout the prophets and the priests and the kings who follow the book of Exodus. Every generation after the book of Exodus celebrated the events in the book of Exodus. And eventually prophets like the prophet Isaiah and others began predicting that a servant of the Lord who was like Moses was going to arise one day and create a brand new and better Exodus. Even Moses himself told the people that God would one day raise up a prophet like him from among them, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. So the Exodus is what most of the Old Testament pointed back to, but also what the Old Testament began hoping for, and Jesus Christ fulfilled that hope when he brought the new Exodus found in his death and burial and resurrection. If you really think about it, if you know your Old Testament at all, you'll understand that God is always shown as a God who is geared towards Exodus. He pulled Abraham, as I said, out of Ur to go to the promised land. He pulled Jacob out of Laban's tyrannical presence to go back to Canaan. He pulled Joseph out of a pit and out of slavery to seat him next to Pharaoh's throne. He pulled Israel out of the wilderness and brought them into the promised land. He pulled Rahab out of Jericho and brought her into God's family. He pulled Gideon out of a threshing floor to make him a warrior for God. He pulled Hannah out of barrenness and despair and put a leader who would deliver his people 
into her womb. He pulled Ruth out of Moab to raise up the line of the Savior from her offspring. He pulled the people in Ezra and Nehemiah's day out of captivity into God's land. Daniel and the lion's den, David and his caves, Hezekiah and his illness. Over and over again, God worked an exodus for his people. So the point of this book is to show us this is who God is. He is one who is always trying to pull his people out so he can bring them into a deeper relationship with himself. So the focus of the book is on being set free in order to know God. God drew Israel out of Egypt and through the Red Sea out into the wilderness so they could build a tabernacle where they could meet with him. That's how God is revealed in Exodus. And he wants the same for us. He wants to bring us ever increasingly out of addictions, out of tendencies, out of weaknesses, out of habits, out of relationships, and so much more in order to bring us into deeper relationship with himself. A departure from sin in order to enter into his holy presence. And because God is the God of the repeated exodus, I want you to think of exodus as something that God does once and then a million times in and during your Christian journey. In fact, if you look at all of the exoduses in the Bible, there's always a yeah, but attached to the end of it. You know, the people come out of their slavery, but they falter. David comes out and is the victorious king in Israel, but he sins over and over again. There's a, yeah, but we need the exodus that Christ provides, but we need increasing, continual exoduses throughout our lives. I think it would be wrong for us to think of God as the God of the singular exodus, the one who at the cross dealt with all of it and then is not trying to deal with me any longer. No, he's the God who is trying to sanctify and grow and shape and change our lives. A massive exodus followed by thousands of miniature exoduses throughout the duration of our lives. At the beginning, he pulls you out so he can pull you in, but then he repeats this work over and over again. When my girls were little, like your kids, if, you've ha if you have children, there came the big moment where they left uh, the crib and got to sleep in their own big girl beds. And uh, this is an exciting moment for a child. It's like a graduation of sorts, you know, and you kind of got to make all these deals like, hey, you're no longer in a cage. Are you going to stay in this? <laughs> you know, when I close the door, you got to stay in there, you know, and uh, all of that. And, and uh, you know, when, when we did that, uh, like many kids, uh, they, they loved, okay, that we, what we want to have then is we want to get in our bed and we want you to put us to bed each night. And that was something that Christina and I did for many, many years. Little stories or times to just laugh and giggle, just kind of hang out together before bedtime. I'd like to think it was because they wanted to spend time with me, but maybe it was because they didn't want to go to sleep yet. I don't know. I can't be sure. But I never would have said, hey, you know, when you became big girl bed ready, I...
got the materials. I, I don't want to make it sound like I built this from scratch. I went to Ikea, and, uh, and I got a bed, and I followed the directions, and to the best of my ability, I put it together. It's a little rickety, but you're light. You'll be, you'll be fine, you know, kind of thing. And, and I didn't say, uh, you know, my expectation was that I would, I would build you this bed, and then from here on after, you're kind of on your own. You can put yourself to bed. I'm not gonna go in there. I'm never gonna tuck you in. No, uh, I understood there's, there's a desire for something more. And I think if we look at the book of Exodus and we see God saying to the people of Israel, come out of Egypt, build this tabernacle, what he's saying to them is, because I want to meet with you at that structure I've taught you to build over and over and over again. I haven't set you free just to be set free as he said to Pharaoh over and over again, let my people go so that they might serve me. He wanted to bring them deeper into himself. And that's what God wants to do with you. So as we're going through the book of Exodus, I want you to be asking God, asking the Holy Spirit the question, what Egypts are there that you wanna pull me out of? What Exoduses are you trying to work in my life? And I'm sure that for many of you, you're already identifying some of the things that you know I know God is working in my life right now. I know that he's trying to perform this exodus. And as we go through this book, you're going to see some of the ways that those, those exoduses are difficult and challenging and take faith and trust in the Lord. But that's what God is trying to do in us, the same thing he did in Israel. So that's the first thing I wanted you to see. God is geared towards exodus. Okay, the second thing I wanted you to see about God's presence is that it is often behind the scenes, number two. Let's read our next movement through the rest of chapter one, uh, starting in verse eight. It says, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too mighty and too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they sent taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So, verse 13, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt, verse 15, said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. In this second movement, 
we learn that God's presence is often behind the scenes. Uh, we, we discover that Israel's rapid growth, it disturbed the current king of Egypt. Uh, and because he didn't know and had no sense of duty to Joseph, who had come over four centuries earlier, he told his people to begin oppressing Israel, using them as slave labor to build the cities of Pithom and Ramses. Uh, but his tactics, we discover as we read through the passage, they had the opposite effect than he intended, didn't it? Uh, the, the more Israel was oppressed, it says in verse 12, the more they multiplied. Uh, this only inflamed the Egyptian xenophobia and they brutalized the Israelites further in verse 13 and 14. Now eventually, Pharaoh turned to genocide in an attempt to curb the rapid growth of the Hebrew people. Uh, he commanded these two midwives, their names were Shipra and Pua, to kill all the male, male babies born to the Hebrews. Uh, but they were women who feared God, it says in verse 17, over the king, and they let the male children live. And when Pharaoh interrogated them about the presence of all these Hebrew baby boys that were in the land, uh, they made up an excuse that pacified him so God, because he hates injustice done to vulnerable babies in and out of the womb, he dealt well with the midwives by giving them families of their own. Finally, at the last turn of this passage, Pharaoh's secret plans foiled. He resorted to public policy. He, he came out with it and he just said to all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. Now throughout this whole chapter, uh, God is barely mentioned. He's really only mentioned in the dealings with the Hebrew midwives. Uh, but it's obvious that even though he's not mentioned all the time, he's working all the time behind the scenes in this passage. Uh, in fact, God in the book of Genesis made it clear that he knew that this day was going to come. He told Abraham 400 plus years earlier, he said, know for certain in Genesis 15, 13, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. God said that hundreds of years before it occurred. And now God is ready to judge Egypt. And he's the one who caused Israel to grow from a family of 70 to a nation of two or three million well in Egypt. He's the one who reversed the impact of Pharaoh's persecution and caused them to flourish. He's the one who honored the Hebrew midwives for their resistance to Pharaoh's edict and caused Israel to continue to grow. Despite all the pressures that his people endured, the evidence is clear. God was working behind the scenes to prosper his people. And I think we're meant to understand God in the same way as well. Just as he worked behind the scenes on that day, he worked behind the scenes in the New Testament era as well. When there was Roman dominance and Herod's madness at the beginning of Jesus's life, he brought his son into the world. And today, he works behind the scenes to expand the church. Exodus 1, I think, is a microcosm of a lot in our world today. City and economy building on the backs of the powerless, millions of literal child slaves, sweatshop slaves, sex slaves, along with billions of figurative slaves on earth today, slaves to power and lust and screens and substances and so much more. But faithfully, 
God is behind the scenes, working by his spirit to set his people free. Despite all the persecution the church has endured, we are still expanding, we are still reaching, we're still growing. We might have fallen on hard or purifying times here in the West, but all throughout the world, God is breaking into nations and setting people free with his gospel. And the affliction that God allows us to witness and sometimes endure is meant to increase our desire for exodus. God wanted an exodus, but Israel would have stayed in Egypt forever as long as they had the favor of the Pharaoh. But this new hostility birthed in them a desire, was starting to create in them a want to leave exodus for the first time in hundreds of years. God wanted them out, but now they were beginning to want out themselves. And that is always a necessary ingredient. John said it this way in 1 John 2. He said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. When he says do not love the world, he's not saying don't love people in the world. He's saying don't love the world system. Don't love what the world is about. But sometimes in order for us to get there, in order for us to want exodus, we have to become disillusioned with the world itself. And the people of Israel were becoming disillusioned there in Egypt as a result of their persecution. But that's who God is. He is present by working behind the scenes. When Joseph was sold into slavery by his own brothers, he could have despaired and believed that God had forgotten him. But God was behind the scenes, raising him up to become the second most powerful man in Egypt. When Ruth's husband died in Moab, Ruth could have stopped believing in the God of Israel, but God was instead working behind the scenes in her life to bring her into the redemptive line of Christ. When Esther, in the book of Esther, was taken as the captive queen of Ahasuerus, she could have despaired, but she soon realized that God was working behind the scenes and had placed her there for the deliverance of his people. And when Jesus's close disciples secretly sold him out to the religious elite. Jesus could have despaired, but he knew that his father was working behind the scenes using Judas's insidious plan to deliver the salvation of the world to the world through the cross. Time and time again, God shows us he is a God who works behind the scenes. Do you believe this about God? The Bible says that for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, he uses all things together for good. Do you believe this about God? I saw a, an interesting street interview that was done by a news team recently where they were on the streets, I think of Chicago, maybe some other big city, and it was before the start of the National Hockey League season, and they were stopping and asking people, are you a, a hockey fan? And uh, they stopped this one guy, and they said, hey, what's your name? He said, oh, my name's Kyle from Chicago. And uh, little did they know that they were talking to the general manager of the Chicago Blackhawks hockey team when they asked this question. 
And I know they'd been tricking people all day. They're like, oh, you think you're a hockey fan? Who are your favorite players on your team? And you know how people are. You get a camera in front of their face. It's like you can't remember anything. But they asked him. They're like, okay, well, you're a a Blackhawks fan. Who are your favorite players? And he just started listing the whole roster down to like the guys that nobody even knew about, you know? And they're just like, who is this Kyle from Chicago? Well, he was the general manager of the team. And I think a lot of times we're like that with God. We think that God is clueless. We think that God doesn't know what he's doing, but he knows every single name of his children. He knows every hair on our head. There is nothing that can happen to us that he does not know about. He is powerful, conscious, working behind the scenes in our lives in powerful ways. We have to believe this about the Lord. Okay, the last thing I want you to see comes from chapter two, verse one through 10. That'll be our last passage today. And uh, this section, I think, shows us that God's presence, uh, he's present working out his plans. Let's look in verse one. It says, now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. Uh, The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women, or woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Okay, in this last movement, I think we learn that God is present to work out his plans. Uh, The story zeroes in on one family, one Hebrew family, a husband and wife who, even though they heard Pharaoh's threats, they they still wanted a baby. They still tried to have a baby. We learn later that Moses' parents were named Amram, that's his dad, and Jochebed, that's his mother. But at this point in the story, uh, the author is not concerned with their names, just the details of his birth. But what it does tell us is that when the woman conceived in verse 2 and bore a son, she saw that this baby was a fine child and uh, hid him for three months. Now, now in the New Testament, there's actually a little bit more about this detail. When Stephen gives a message in Acts chapter 7, he says that Moses was no ordinary baby. And uh, the book of Hebrews describing this moment in Moses' life says that Moses was a beautiful child. This makes scholars have a field day trying to figure out what did Jochebed see 
in Moses that made her say he's a fine child and Stephen say he's no ordinary child and the book of Hebrews to say he was beautiful and there's conjecture on and on and on. I think what was happening was the same thing that happens to moms billions of times throughout human history. She looked at her little baby. She said, he's amazing. (laughs) There's something special about him. He has a destiny that's much bigger than death in the Nile River. This is when God worked his wonder. Jochebed made a little basket, and she turned it into a flotation device for her baby boy. She put him among the reeds near where the daughter of Pharaoh would wash in the river probably each morning. She then saw the basket, Pharaoh's daughter did. She sent her servant to retrieve it. She opened it, and it was like on cue, cry. And Moses began crying. And this maternal instinct was unlocked in the princess, in this unbelieving woman, and immediately the adoption was complete. She brings Moses into her family. Uh, With that, Moses' older sister appears for the first time. We'll, We'll learn later that her name is Miriam. She's a key figure. But she pops out of the reeds, and she offers to find a Hebrew nurse to raise the child. And the princess loved the plan. She told Miriam that she would gladly pay for this service. So Miriam took Moses right back to his mom so that she could be paid to be his mom. (laughs) This is wild. So the, the whole story is meant to be an example of God's sovereign ability to work out his plans. God is, in the Bible, presented as all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, and all-good, and here he demonstrates all of that. Moses' birth and adoption by Pharaoh's daughter is the ultimate in the frustration of Pharaoh's plans. I mean, think about it. He's trying to kill all the Hebrew boys. Now he has a Hebrew boy for a grandson. He tried to bring the death to Moses, but now he brings life to Moses by, by funding his whole childhood. And his household is even gonna pay Moses' true mom to nurse her son. The story shows God working out his plans in unexpected ways and with unexpected people. All throughout the book of Exodus, this is not a battle between Pharaoh and Israel or Moses and Pharaoh. This is a battle between God and Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the ultimate Man, And in this story, already we see a group of women that God uses to work their subterfuge against Pharaoh's plans. You've got Moses' mom. You've got midwives. You've got a sister. You've got a princess all working against this man. Even Moses' mom could have said, hey, I technically obeyed you, Pharaoh. I put my son in the river after all. I, I couldn't have said that that's what was going to happen. But nothing could stop God from working out his plans. Sometimes like Moses' mother, we have to surrender and allow God to do what only he can do. For her to receive Moses back to herself, she had to let him go in that river. That's who God is. He is present by working out his plans. In the book of Genesis, when humanity gathered together to rebel in unified fashion against him at the Tower of Babel, God said, that's great, that, uh, that's your plan, but that's not my plan. So he came down and disrupted them, caused them to speak various languages, which drove them far from each other so that they would still have a chance to seek and know God eventually. 
when Balak, in the book of Numbers, the king of Moab, hired Balaam, a sorcerer, to put a curse on God's people. That was his plan, but three times instead a blessing came out of his mouth. That was God's plan. When Nebuchadnezzar built a statue in the book of Daniel and forced people to bow to it and therefore worship him, God stood with his three Hebrew followers who would not bow to the idol. And when they survived Nebuchadnezzar's fires of judgment, everyone stopped thinking about Nebuchadnezzar and started praising the God of these three Hebrew men. And in the New Testament, when Caesar Augustus flexed his muscles and commanded everyone to go to their hometown to be registered, God used the man to move pregnant Mary into Bethlehem, the prophesied birthplace of the Messiah. And when Satan and human leaders conspired to end Jesus' run on the cross, God started the greatest revolution and exodus in human history, the exodus that all other biblical exoduses point to. God has his plans, and he works out those plans, is what I'm trying to say. So what we see in these opening scenes of Exodus is that even though God is not explicitly mentioned all that much, he is ever-present. We gotta remember this, you guys, when, it, when we don't see the direct results, when we don't see it with our own eyes. The Bible says that we walk by faith, not by sight. We have to believe and trust and know because we look to the cross of Christ that God is on the move. He is executing his plans and purposes. Even though God's people here in Exodus chapter one and two were enslaved, God was behind the scenes blessing and expanding his people. And despite all the bad press that people ascribe to God, he is still ever present. Behind the scenes, he instituted, as I said, the ultimate exodus through the cross from the ultimate tyrant of sin. God worked out his plan by sending his own son as a foreigner to be raised, not in a palace like Moses, but in poverty so that he might suffer and die for us. And God prepares us for exodus, stirring in our hearts a deep dissatisfaction that causes us to look for his deliverance. And he is ever present to continue that work in us. The God of history is always planning an exodus for us. He wants to pull us out of sin so that he can pull us into himself. That's what day one of the Christian life looks like. If you've not yet received Jesus and believed in Jesus, I wanna invite you to believe and trust in him today. He died on the cross for your sin so that you could have new life in him, be forgiven of everything that you've ever done and ever will do. Day one in, of Christianity is an exodus, but it's also what day 10,000 looks like. And I also assume that it's what day 20,000 looks like. I'll let you know when I get there. But all these years later, God still has exodus on his mind. He's still pulling us out of Egypt so that he can pull us into himself. Whether we feel his presence or not, that's what he's faithfully, steadfastly up to. But the question is, Will we continue to go out so that we might know and serve him? That's the question of this book. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. 
Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.